0: we begin, I just uh, had a question. The, you saw that there were members of our global outreach team up here, right? They were praying. And then um, I just want to ask you, did you see anybody wearing any international garb? They had this great idea. It was like, this is going to be Global Sunday. We're going to get together. We're going to celebrate. George, bring your international stuff. You can wear your international stuff as you preach. What's up? Where's your international stuff? I'm the only one, right? That was a great idea. All right. I don't know what that says about our relationship with the board, but something, yeah? All right. Let's pray. Father, we give this service to you. We are here to celebrate um, what you're doing around the world and for the privilege of being able to participate. Pray that um, as I speak that you'll take me out of it. Thank you for this opportunity. In your name, amen. So we are in the very last sermon of the good life, right? And we've been walking through and really stressing hard that the good life is not the abundance of stuff, things, doesn't matter, right? Material stuff, and not the absence of what? Difficulties, trials, troubles, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today at Global Outreach Sunday, We're going to finish up this series looking at the church around the world because we are part of that church, okay? There's one church. There's Jesus Christ Church. And I love seeing and hearing about how people are stepping into God's larger redemptive story. I love hearing the stories about how people, as Jesus' hands and feet, are moving out. And God is really blessing that. We're going to celebrate that. And we're going to celebrate our partnerships around the world, okay? But we're also, this morning, want to be very aware of some of the costs that happens as people from this fellowship, as people from this church, as Paul would say, have moved out to the regions beyond, right? And we also want to talk about some of our international ministry partners that are being persecuted for the gospel as we speak, What is our part in this? How do we play a significant role? We support them, right? We're sending church for our missionaries. And first and foremost, we pray. We pray against isolation. That's one of the things that everybody, every missionary comes to grips with because there's lots of things coming against them in culture, in just the foreignness of it, in societies that not... Supporting or friendly to the gospel. They feel isolated. We pray against discouragement against fear We pray we pray big blessings on them. We pray for open doors. We pray for protection for their families What about our international? Ministry partners like our sister churches. How do we pray for them? How do we support them? The same way we pray for protection. We pray for God's blessing And we also go and we see them. We have a physical presence there, but everything that we do is going to be field-led, meaning we go and they tell us what to do. They're the bosses, whether they're our missionaries or they're our international partners, and it's field-driven. We're there to support them, to encourage them, to come behind them. And if I go through a list this morning of our missionaries from YZ and our international partners around the world, and asked you, what do their ministries look like, what would you guys say? Let me rephrase that. Their ministries, whom are they serving? What kind of people are they serving? Almost, without exception, all our missionaries, all our international partners are serving people like this. Isaiah one seventeen. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Our international ministry partners... And our missionaries are ministering to the oppressed. They minister to the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the trafficked, the needy, the poor, and the slave. And our role is to do likewise. What can we learn from our missionaries and our ministry partners? What's our role? That's what we're talking about this morning. What is our motivation? The Bible speaks very clearly about our responsibility to serve those who are marginalized and the needy. Christ spent the majority of his ministry with the marginalized and the oppressed. He could have easily remained in the temple and just taught, but he didn't. He went out to people who didn't feel comfortable or welcome in the temple. Is there a call on me to serve the broken, And needy? Is there a call on you this morning to do the same, to serve the broken and the needy, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed? Is it part of who we are? What was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? You remember back in Genesis 19, Abraham, Lot, Lot was there, God wipes out Sodom. What was their sin? Why did God do it? Go ahead. Sexual immorality, right? That's what we all think. Part of that's true. But Ezekiel says it pretty explicitly in this, 1649. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. God saves people from all walks of life. But he doesn't just save us, he saves us into a body of believers, into the church. One church, not many different churches. We support each other, and our role as YZ is to stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And this morning, what we're going to talk about is the way we do it. Because we're Westerners, and we're working With the global south, we're working with the east, we're working in different nations. The way that we work with our ministries, the way we work with people who do not know Christ, the way we do missions, it matters. Okay? So, here is our ministry philosophy. And this is gonna be pretty basic. We are not event oriented, okay? We are relationship-oriented, okay? All that means, and this is kind of, um, it's not a continue. it's like, a, think of this as like a pendulum, okay? All this means is that there are different phases of ministry and missionary work. This would be kind of event, right? And this would be relief, And this would be kind of the physical needs, all right? And I put two chairs really close together because this is how much emphasis we put on this, okay? And I know that might sound counterintuitive. This here, from here, is relationship, okay? This is development. This is walking alongside in true partnership. And then beyond is release and mobilizing them into ministry. Does that make sense? Am I right, dear? Terry thinks it's okay? All right. This is what we're going to do, and I'm going to walk back and forth between relief, development, rehabilitation, and release, okay? And this morning, this talk, if you haven't read a book by Dr. Frickett, and there's another book, Dan Myers, Walking with the Poor. Dr. Frickett wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. So this is kind of a combination of all this, and my experience, and some of the mistakes that we made, but then I don't want you to just take my word for it, because I got a lot of stuff that Jesus says, so Jesus is going to back me up this morning, okay? So we're going to look at how we do ministry, because I think there's some potential disconnects here. I think there are three things that we need to be aware of, because even if we do have a good heart, even if we are trying to walk with the needy and the poor, there are things that we need to be aware of because we might be, as the book says, trying to help, but we're really hurting those that we want to help. We want to define the relief part first, okay? How do we find this part of our ministry in what terms? usually material terms, okay? There's a lack of something, right? There's a lack of health care. There is a lack of food. There is a lack of income, right? There's a lack of wealth. And so we respond in this area with material needs. We come along and we help them in those types of areas. Something is broken and we need to fix it. And for us, that part is really easy, Right? We understand the material. As Westerners, we define most of our successes in material terms. I have a question, though. What is poverty? What is brokenness? And this just isn't an academic question, okay? Because how we answer what is poverty, how we view the marginalized, determines our answers and how we help. Are we just looking at symptoms Or are we looking at underlying causes? Let me give you a scenario, okay? From Kenya. I want to introduce you to Kanika. Kanika lives in a slum in western Kenya. She's female in a male-dominated society, subjected to polygamy, to verbal and physical abuse, and has fewer years of education than the males in that society. She lacks confidence to look for a job. But one day things change and she decides to be self-employed to try to get out of this cycle. Needs to get a loan to start. When she gets the loan, there's a 300% interest rate on a $25 loan. She's selling homemade charcoal in the local local market. But guess what? So is everybody else. So what does that do to the price? What does that do to her profit margin? It's almost zero. She doesn't sell anything else because she has no access to any other resources. So what does she do? She's stuck in the cycle, doesn't know how to get out. She goes to the shaman and asks for help, asks him to assess her situation. The shaman says, you know what? You've angered your ancestral spirits. You need to buy a goat. You need to sacrifice that goat to appease the spirits. Is there material poverty there? Absolutely. Is there more than material poverty there? Is there broken relationship there? If you ask someone that is living in material poverty, if you ask someone who's oppressed, they almost never define that cycle in the way that we would do it. Lack of income, lack of health care, lack of wealth. They do it in psychological and social terms. Terry and I have met people They have named their children, literally translated, no name, or you don't know. It's a sense of hopelessness that they can't break out. And when you talk to them, what they say is, I am nothing. I have no hope. There is no future for me. There's no future for my kids. It's degrading. It's lack of dignity. That's how they describe it. There's another brokenness there. There's another brokenness that we cannot help with if we are solely focused on the material, on relief. It is appropriate, and we'll get to that. Let's talk about relief. Let's talk about the event. Let's talk about the physical need. Is building a hospital a good thing? Should we be doing relief work? I'm going to say yes. I'm not going to set you up. I'm going to say yes. All the schools and the clinics that we built are good things. But I'm going to exaggerate this, okay, just so you get a picture. Is putting a 3 million CT scanner in that hospital a good thing? No, and here's why. Because they can't maintain it. When that breaks down, that will just be a broken machine, and they're right back to where they started. Because we go in, we have all kinds of money, right? Right? We can do that, we can afford that, but we never think about their culture. And when we do that in services and goods, we have all these well-intentioned NGOs going in, funded by the West. Local economies cannot compete with the Western dollar, and what happens is we end up putting people out of jobs. Why wouldn't they go to the NGO? Why wouldn't they get money from the NGO? That is not what we're doing here this morning. If you don't know it, we have a global marketplace back in the fireside room. It is cool. And the idea behind that is we have product from Peru, Ethiopia. Ethiopia has pillows. We have product from Turkey. We have product from our global ministry partners, nationals, okay? Refugees are making product we're working with art to heart sending materials over there and doing training. That's part of the Ethiopia trip. They're going over to train Ethiopians how to sew the pillows so that they can make a living and support themselves. Go back and check out that global marketplace because that's an excellent way. It's in the fireside room. It's an excellent way to support nationals and mobilize them and release them into ministry. Because can they do ministry if they can't live? No. And we are called to help the needy, to help the oppressed. And did I mention there's Haitian coffee back there, right? If you want your coffee, go back and get some Haitian coffee. And there's Turkish delight, okay? There's other things, but there's Turkish delight. Do you guys know what Turkish delight is? It is the thing in the lion and the witch and the wardrobe that Edmund sold his soul for to the white witch, okay? Okay? And I'm not telling you to go back there and get Turkish Delight and sell your soul, but, you know, maybe. Semantics, yeah? Sell your soul to Jesus. Go back there. Check it out. It's cool. Reasons why we like relief. Reasons why we focus on the event almost exclusively and don't develop relationship. And when I say we focus on this, this is necessary, but we let the nationals lead in relationship. Here is one of our first disconnects, okay? Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. What's the difference between righteousness and self-righteousness in this passage, okay? Look at the connection between verse 1 and 2 and 3, okay? It says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness, And you know what? Jesus tells us what our righteousness is. It's not if. It's in verse 2, so. This is your righteousness in verse 2. So, when you give to the needy. Again, in verse 3, it's not if. Right? (laughs) It's a but, right? But, when you give to the needy. That is your righteousness. That is righteousness. We are called to do it. What is self-righteousness? In this passage, we like this. We like writing out our checks. We like being here because this is easy, right? We can do the event. We can be involved in whatever it is and then disengage, not be in relationship, go back to our lives and not have to deal with that anymore. And you know what else? Because we did that, we can self-glorify a little bit. We can say, you know what, I am involved. I am doing this. I do have heart for the poor. Jesus warns us against that. The difference between righteousness and self-righteousness is right there. So, let's talk about this part, okay? Development, relationship, rehabilitation, reasons why we don't like it. And this is the second potential disconnect for us, okay? The first disconnect is we try to solve spiritual problems exclusively in material terms, okay? That is not going to work for Kanika from Kenya. Do we address her physical needs? Yes. Let me just say this and let me say it emphatically. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. I'm not saying don't do relief work. I'm not saying don't give money, okay? I'm saying double what you give. Any money that you're giving to the poor right now, double it. Any ministry that you're working with right now that's working with the oppressed and working with injustice and working for the needy, double it. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is double your money. Give more money. But don't do that exclusively. Because if we do do that exclusively, we don't walk with them in relationship. And we come from a Western perspective. And it's a heart issue. Is that clear? Double your money. I don't see anybody's checkbooks out, okay? Let's do it. Double. All right. It's a heart issue. Here is the second potential disconnect. What's the greatest commandment? We're going to go out of Luke 10. What's the greatest commandment? Luke 10, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So in Luke 10, we have the grace command, and let me give you a little context for this. This is an expert in the law. This is a lawyer that is, we learn from this uh, text that he's not really sincere, right? He asks for eternal life. What do you have to do to have eternal life? Jesus turns it back on him because he knows that this guy is duplicitous. He knows he has alternative motives. He's, tr- motives. he's trying to trap Jesus in some kind of heresy with the Old Testament, okay? That is what is going on. And so, Jesus, you don't just—I you, you, don't know. These guys don't learn. You don't mess with Jesus in this kind of rhetoric back and forth. But Jesus is going to take him out, okay? So what does Jesus say? You answered correctly, right? So the man, we see that this lawyer was not being honest. He was not seeking eternal life because the crux of this passage rests on verse 29. And what does verse 29 say? Who's my neighbor, right? He wants to know who my neighbor is. And this is such a misunderstanding of the demand that God has placed on us on this commandment. Because there is a disconnect here. We like the first com- part of the commandment, but we ignore the second part. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus knows this, and this is why. He answers not the way the man expects, but with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, what happens? There's a man <coughs> along the road is taken out by robbers, by three thieves, left on the side of the road. He is clearly suffering. He's down. He's oppressed. And then Jesus picks three very specific people, right? The priest, right? Very holy Israel, who was him, The layperson, the Levite, coming along. And then the Samaritan, who Israel, who Jews have open hostility toward, right? Samaritans are half reads Jews don't like them. Jesus then turns it back around, and the Samaritan, by the way, if you don't know the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan is the only one that helps the person in the ditch, right? That's been robbed, that's been stripped, and takes him to the inn and sells all the debts. Jesus turns to the lawyer and says what? What's the conclusion? Which one of these does it seem to you became a neighbor to the one that fell among the thieves? There's no other choice. The lawyer answers, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus simply replies, go and do likewise. Verse 29 is the crux. Because another way to phrase this question that the lawyer is saying, Jesus, I want you to tell me who the neighbor is. I want you to tell me who to love. Right? Surely I'm not supposed to love the Romans. They're oppressing God's chosen people. Jesus, surely my neighbor aren't the prostitutes or the taxpayers or the tax collectors. Surely it's not them, not the lawbreakers. And Jesus, tell me that my neighbor is not the half-breed Samaritan. That is another way to phrase this question. That is what the lawyer is specifically asking. Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is and then then I can focus all my love and attention on that person and exclude everybody else. Jesus, in this parable, is saying there are no national boundaries. He uses the Good Samaritan for a specific reason to point out that this lawyer doesn't have the heart of a servant or a neighbor. I think the point of this command, love the Lord your God with everything you got, And love your neighbor as yourself. The man is in suffering. The point of the second part of this command is that God is trying to produce in us men and women of compassion and mercy. So that when we come across suffering, we cannot ignore it. Here's a question about this. When you think about this and no national borders and who's your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we honestly pursuing their eternal salvation or even their material blessing with as much zeal as we are ourselves and what's ours? That's a disconnect. The second disconnect is that we like to choose whom we love. We like to choose our neighbor and even after that choice, we ignore people but we will not love them as ourselves. That's the second disconnect. Third disconnect. Maybe you are doing good, right? Maybe you are involved in relief work and you're doubling it and you are moving in relationship and you're figuring out how to let nationals lead, right? Maybe you are doing all that, but sometimes it's really good to refocus because we have hearts that are just sinful And full of ourselves, right? We really like ourselves and that's why we ignore the second part of that commandment. We're really good at self-love. So maybe you are doing all that, right? And maybe your heart is really good. But what sometimes happens? And I'm just speaking for myself. I've seen this in myself. What happens? I'm helping someone that's in the ditch. I'm the Good Samaritan. Yes, you're in the ditch. Let me help you up out of that come up here. You can be like me. Look at this. You can come up. The sun is shining. It's blue sky. You can be a whole Christian like me. I'm the litmus. Come up. You can be like me. You can have a good life like me. You can have abundant life like me. Let me help you out of the ditch. There are two things wrong with that premise. If we are solely focused on the material and helping them in that way without relationship and not learning from them and working in true partnership, what happens is we dehumanize them. We do not give them a sense of dignity, and that's wrong. The second reason why this premise is wrong is because you and I are in the ditch as well. If you spend any time walking with the materially broken or the oppressed, it will not take long for you to see the spiritual brokenness, the spiritual brokenness and relationship in your own life. Whether it be with God, others, creation, or self. We are broken. But that's okay. Because the cry of the broken and what we learn from the persecuted church is that we need Jesus. We cry out, Jesus, we need you. And that's a good thing. That is what we should be crying out all the time. If you are partnering with God... In his larger redemptive story, and you're doing so in such a way that you can fulfill your part on your own, then may I suggest that God has more for you. If you can fulfill all your dreams in your own strength, you're not dreaming big enough. Why is that as a church, if we can fulfill our mission, our vision, on our own without partnerships with other churches and without looking at the larger global church, if we can do it on our own as a body of Wisetta, then what are we doing? We're not dreaming big enough. We're not asking God, show us what you have for us. That's the challenge for us in Global Sunday